Welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Luce Nguyen. Today, my guests are Bernard Scharfman and Vincent Deluard. We're here to talk about their article, How Discretionary Decision-Making Has Created Performance and Legal Disclosure Issues for the S&P 500 Index. A post on this article is coming soon on the Columbia Law Blue Sky blog. Bernard Scharfman is a Senior Corporate Governance Fellow at the Real Clear Foundation, a member of the Journal of Corporation Law's Editorial Advisory Board, and a former Visiting Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Maryland School of Law and the Case Western Reserve University School of Law. Mr. Scharfman has written a number of comment letters to the SEC, NASDAQ, Department of Labor, and the New York Stock Exchange, and his blog post can be found on the Harvard Law Harvard Forum Columbia Law School's Blue Sky blog, the Oxford Business Law blog, and Duke Law School's FinReg blog. Mr. Scharfman recently refereed Gub articles for the Stanford Law Review and the Yale Law Journal. Mr. Scharfman has practiced corporate and securities law and is a graduate of the Georgetown University Law Center. Welcome. Thank you. Vincent Delaward is the global macro strategist for StoneX, where he authors weekly research reports on global macro trends, flows, European capital markets, and quantitative topics. Vincent advises large pension funds and other institutional investors on asset allocation and risk management. He has 15 years in equity research. Vincent taught ethical and professional standards and private wealth management for the CFA Society of San Francisco. Vincent is an adjunct professor of finance for St. Mary's College Masters in Finance and taught at Golden Gate University's Executive MBA program. Vincent is a CFA charter holder. He completed a dual master's degree as at Sciences Po Paris and Columbia University and speaks English, French, Italian, and Indonesian. Welcome. Welcome. Pleasure to be here. So let's start off by asking why did you two write this article and what in particular inspired you to do so? Well, that, the motivation for uh, this writing was the S&P 500's 2017 decision to exclude companies with dual-class shares, except for those that had already been grandfathered, like Alphabet and Facebook and Comcast and Nike, Berkshire Hathaway. I th- at the time, I thought the decision was a major mistake and that it would eventually harm the performance of uh, funds that track the index. And in our article, Vincent's empirical analysis demonstrate that this has indeed been the case. So how did you two decide to team up on this paper? Well, back in May 2020, I saw a uh, market report that Vincent had wrote up that empirically demonstrated that ESG investing has a natural bias against companies with employees. And I thought that was a really fascinating report. So uh, I contacted Vincent, and we started to have a really positive conversation about ESG investing and investment advisors in general. And given Vincent's empirical skills and financial expertise, I thought he'd make an uh, excellent co-author for a paper on the S&P 500. So moving into the issue of the article, which discusses S&P 500 funds and index investing, what's the particular particular rationale for index investing? In particular, what's the distinction between active and passive modes of investing? Well, index investing uh, really came about in the 70s, I think, was the first uh, S&P 500 index fund. And it was based on a a mathematical observation, uh, a tautology almost, uh, that um, for any given market, uh, the performance of the active sector uh, will be equal to that of a passive uh, investor. By passive, meaning someone who never trades and just hold um, the index based on, on market cap minus the fees and any associated costs like trading or research. So as a whole, uh, the active sector must always underperform um, a market cap weighted benchmark for any given market. Um, and initially, it seemed like a crazy idea. 
because everybody wanted to pick winners, right? No one wants to be average, but as time passed, um, more often than not, that, that mathematical reality was verified. And year after year, we saw uh, passive funds outperforming on average in the uh, active funds. That's, of course, not saying that every active fund underperformed. There has been tremendous performance by some managers, but as a whole, the active sector has underperformed the passive sector. And this has created a um, kind of self-reinforcing loop of more passive products being launched. Of course, ETFs for that were um, a very practical vehicle and more flows leaving the active sector going uh, into the passive sectors. And in the US, many of these funds track the S&P 500 index, which um, is the crux really of our argument. Is this really such a good index to track the performance of US stocks? Yeah, I just want just wanted to add my, my two cents and my... my uh... Uh, more, uh, let's say, a t- intuitive approach uh, about, you know, the rationale for index investing. Basically, you know, for in- investors who know little about the stock market and probably don't really care, index investing makes great sense, right? Index funds allow investors to invest in a low-cost, diversified portfolio of stocks and potentially earn market returns. And for an investor like me, Maybe I know a little more than the average investor, but I don't really want to get involved in the stock market. And so I create a diversified portfolio for myself by investing in index funds. So one of the key concepts of understanding index investing is the concept of Sharpe's equality. Can you talk about what it is and why the concept is so important to understand? Yes. Uh, so Sharpe's equality is uh, what I was referring to earlier, the notion that as a whole, uh, the passive sector will outperform the active sector for, for any given market. Uh, so that is really the um, mathematical rational for index investing. If you don't have a clue about which stocks to pick, you're better off owning a little bit of everyone and letting the, letting the market ride you're going to get average return and it's going to be better on average uh, picking an, an active manager. Um, there are, however, two limitations to Sharpe's equality that I think matter. Uh, one is that in, in the original paper, the uh, arithmetic, arithmetic of active management, uh, Bill Sharp assumed that the passive sector never traded uh, and never needed to rebalance. Well, obviously that's not the case, right? And I think we're going to go into that as we discuss the paper is that even an index needs to be rebalanced. Uh, so there's trading from there and there's also trading from investor flow. So that assumption behind Sharpe's model is uh, empirically violated. Um, and then the second one, uh, which you know, Sharpe acknowledges, is what do we define as the market? Um, so what, what Sharp, Bill Sharp was looking at was you know, any collection of stock, and that is going to be true. Sharpe's equality is going to be true for any collection of stock. Uh, the question is, who selects these stocks? Are these stocks optimal? Are they a good representation of the U.S. stock market? And I think this is where we're trying to get the conversation away from, you know, a list of 500 companies which are selected with somewhat obscure uh, criteria by a committee towards something that is actually more in line uh, with with what the proponents of passive investing had in mind. Yeah, that that um, you know, that brings up the major issue, I think, here is that what makes a good index for purposes of passive investing, okay? And now I think I'll just introduce the S&P 500, and and our concern there is that the index committee of the S&P 500, who manages the the composition of the S&P 500, has used its discretion to significantly narrow the number of stocks that can represent its defined market. And what is its defined market? Well, it's the most significant large capitalization firms in the leading U.S. industries. It has recently excluded non-grandfathered dual-class shares and delayed the inclusion of Tesla, the world's most valuable electric car maker. Active managers are not so restricted. Okay, So this suggests that the S&P 500 does a suboptimal job and representing its defined market and market returns. So let's go deeper into the S&P 500, particularly what it's meant to be, represent, how it works, and what exactly the members of the S&P 500 are supposed to be. 
Um, I guess I'll start with a, a misconception, right? When, when people think of the S&P 500 index, they generally think of it as the 500 largest uh, stock capitalization listed on U.S. exchanges. And it's not really that. Uh, there are significant deviations from from this theoretical benchmark um, because of other criteria that the committee has put in place over the years. Um, one of them is, I think, a predominance of revenues uh, from the U.S. Another one is um, positive uh, earnings over the past year. Uh, another one is uh, minimum uh, liquidity uh, requirements. There's also a float requirements. So if, if a lot of the shares are owned by a strategic investor, it's not going to be eligible. And then uh, most recently, which is one of the issues we focus on, is a um, restriction on uh, dual cat, um, on the share structure. So after 2017, the committee uh, decided to no longer add shares that had the multiple class structure. Um, in I think in order to foster good, gov- good governance. Uh, but the point is, if you add all these uh, criteria, uh, you end up with a list that is significantly different than than what you would get from just looking at the 500 largest capitalization in the U.S. I mean, I would say at any given point, uh, there's probably um, anywhere between 10 and 20% on market cap, which is not the largest 500 companies. And conversely, there are uh, companies that are not among uh, the 500 largest that are in, in, in the index. So I, I really think I'd like to think of it as an actively managed index uh, by a committee uh, which has some quantitative rules and also some um, qualitative discretion and has been using both over the past 30 years. The index com- committee, uh, it's entirely responsible for the inclusions and exclusions of companies. It's guided by many non-mandatory rules and policies, but in reality, you know, it has total discretion to decide who gets to be part of the index. And it's this discretion and its ramifications, which is, is the focus of our article. So what are the financial and legal implications for this discretionary nature of the S&P Index Committee? Well, the, from a financial perspective, I'll take this financial question, uh, and Vincent will give me a lot more detail. But the, the discretion of the committee may lead to a S&P 500 index that does not accurately represent its defined market and market returns. That is, the committee, through its discretion, may be choosing the wrong companies to include and excluding the right companies, which will lead to suboptimal returns and not a representative, uh, not a, a representative portfolio of companies for the its defined market. Yeah, I think you you expressed that right. Um, I, I think by by using its discretionary power, the committee creates a, a, a source of active return. Uh, which really investors haven't signed up for. <laughs> uh, and um, I mean, of course, active returns can go both ways. I mean, sometimes we can outperform your benchmark. And historically, some of the criteria, criteria that the committee has used, such as a requirement for profitable firm, have added performance. Uh, although lately that hasn't been the case and other decision hasn't been as good. So there is a there is a return component and there's also, I would argue, a diversification component. Uh, is that when you exclude an entire segment of the market, uh, for example, you know, the largest automaker in the world or by market cap at least, or uh, companies with dual cash shares, uh, you reduce the diversification that investors can get. And um, going back to Markowitz and the concept of efficient portfolio, you are no longer providing investors with an efficient portfolio, meaning a portfolio that gives you the highest expected return for any given level of risk. And from... Uh... A legal perspective, okay, what are the legal implications here? Well, one, you got to understand this this discretionary decision-making, there's nothing illegal about it, and we don't want to make, we're not trying to apply that at all. And from a business perspective, it it may be required, especially if the index committee of the S&P 500 has to negotiate with clients who are very strong about, let's say, excluding dual-class shares for whatever the reason, okay? However, this kind of thing where you may be creating uh, a portfolio of, of stocks that have suboptimal returns because of this discretionary decision-making, it, it needs to be disclosed to investors that invest in funds 
that track the S&P 500. So continuing on this theme of uh, the rules of inclusion and exclusion from the S&P 500, can you talk about the circumstances around Tesla's initial exclusion and then inclusion into the S&P 500 index? Well, I guess I can I can start with that. So t- Tesla was extremely unusual in in the sense that you know its market cap really skyrocketed. Uh, so usually, you know, when when the the company looks at you know adding a stock, it's a relatively small one. And, and Tesla, even on the day it IPO'd, was already large enough on, on a pure market cap basis to join the index. Uh, now. When it IPO'd, of course, it was not eligible because the, the committee has this rule that you need um, four quarters of, of, of um, uh, earnings uh, before you can join and you need to show positive profit for at least a year. So um, Tesla was not eligible at the start. Um, Tesla eventually uh, posted a profit, I think, in early 2019, uh, which would have made it eligible. Then again, my impression is that the committee kind of dragged its feet uh, because it was worried about the impact. Uh, again, because Tesla was so large, it would involve um, selling a lot of other stocks in order to buy uh, the share of Tesla. So they wanted to be somewhat mindful. Uh, I think, you know, it could also have been that some of, uh, remember that, you know, the S&P Global, the parent company of, of S&P, uh, makes money from, you know, selling uh, indices to big institutional funds. Some of these big institutional funds may have been short Tesla. I mean, for a long time, it was a, a very crowded short position. Uh, so there may also have been some, some little bit of a conflict of interest there. Um, the bottom line is at the end of the day, uh, they waited for a long time. And when they decided to add it to the index, uh, it was already enormous. Um, and um, the flows that were required uh, from the index fund into Tesla send the stock price even higher in what I would argue was totally disconnected from fundamentals. Uh, so it created a, a return. I mean, people who are smart were able to arbitrage that. Um, you know, you when it became clear that the S&P uh, committee would add Tesla to the index, you know, anyone could just go buy the stock and then quickly flip it over to the index fund as they would rebalance into it. So this is the, the typical index effect that we, we used to see. Uh, and certainly was very pronounced with Tesla. That, that big spike in Tesla's, Tesla's price last year I think had a lot to do with rebalancing flow, something that the index should try to avoid. I mean, this is a needless noise, and at the end of the day, it reduces the returns for, for the investors in S&P 500-related linked uh, index funds. So I would characterize this as a, as a big mess up. Yeah, we, uh, we, we actually, Vincent did some empirical research, and and asked the question if the committee had a rule in place allowing a company to be included after recording an average market value greater than the S&P 500's minimum requirement for four quarters in a row. If that's the case, then Tesla would have been eligible for inclusion on June 29, 2011. And if that were the case, then uh, the S&P index fund would have uh, uh, yielded an additional 24 basis points or 0.24% in return per year while adding just a little bit in, in volatility in the returns of the index. Uh, so, and, and this is, this was uh, Vincent's idea to include this analysis, which I think is really great. And uh, so, you know, in some, yeah, I, I agree totally with Vincent that this was a, I think a major screw up because it's going to cost, Long-term S&P 500 investors a lot of money uh, in the long term. Um, and also, you just think about it and say, why in the world did they wait so long? Uh, this is the leading electric car maker in the world, not just in the U.S., as well as the largest U.S. automaker by market value by far. And yet it was left out of the S&P 500 for so long. That really, really astonished us. And also, in regard to the index effect, is that abnormal increase in price you get from the announcement between the announcement period uh, when it's going to when a stock is going to be included in the S and P five hundred when it, and then when it's actually included. Well, for ten years prior to Tesla, there was a lot of empirical research being done, and it showed that 
the S&P 500 was not being impacted by an index effect. Okay. But given what happened with Tesla, we think that there's probably a, a good a good possibility that this index effect returned. Why? Because Tesla was such a huge company at the time that it was finally included in the S&P 500 that the market, while for an average uh, large cap stock, had the liquidity to include uh, uh, that comp- uh, such a company into the S&P 500 without any type of price effects. Well, Tesla you know, broke the charts got, or broke records for size and the market may not have had enough liquidity. And so you had this incredible price rise, which meant that it cost uh, long-term S&P 500 fund investors even that much more money to when it finally got included into the S&P 500. So continuing on from the previous question, what should be done about these problems that you guys identified, particularly in the Tesla and dual class shares issues, but also on all the other issues regarding to discretion from the S&P index committee? Yes. So Tesla was a very unusual case uh, for the committee. Uh, in the sense that when it IPO'd about 10 years ago, it was already large enough uh, to join the index. Um, now, obviously, uh, the index committee has a rule that, you know, it needs three, four quarters of filings uh, before it can include a, a new component. So it was not eligible back then. Um, and then another issue with Tesla was uh, the fact that earnings were, were negative. Um, so Tesla stayed out of the index. I I have to think that some of the concerns over potential uh, manipulation or the eccentric personality of Elon Musk, or even the fact that many institutional investors, um, which are all clients of S&P Global, the parent company of the um, the S&P 500 index, had a significant short position in Tesla. So all that in, I think, led... um, the committee to kind of postpone the inclusion of um, of Tesla. I, I suspect maybe they were hoping that, uh, um, you know, the fad would go away and um, it would never come up. But the exact opposite happened. Uh, the market cap kept increasing. And by the end of last year, uh, Tesla was um, very, uh, close to $500 billion market cap. Um, and they finally posted a what seemed to be positive earnings for a year. So I think in a panic, the committee just said, okay, we got to do this. We got to let them in. But they had grown so big that the type of flows that were required to rebalance. So basically everybody had to sell the 499 other components of the index to buy Tesla. Um, and because it was the largest addition to the index, uh, this really um, created liquidity issues. Uh, so we saw a big spike in the price of Tesla around the inclusion date. And I suspect a lot of smart arbitragers saw that coming and like, well, that's very easy. I'm just going to buy that. Since I know that all these index funds are going to buy the share of Tesla, I'm going to buy it before them. And then I'm going to resell it to the S&P 500 in the following months, which seems consistent with the price pattern that we've been observing. And as that happened, this has deprived um, investors in S&P 500 index funds from, from returns. I mean, effectively, they've been front run. Um, so they, they lost uh, in two ways. One, by not owning Tesla when the stock price was going up. Uh, and two, when it was finally including in the index, uh, they lost because of the index effect and, and the fact that their trades were front run. So overall, it was a, a massive screw up, probably. I would think the worst crew up in the history of the um, of the S and P five hundred index committee. From my perspective, I, I totally agree with Vincent said, and also Vincent was the one who came up with this idea of, of investigating Tesla's delayed inclusion to the index and what effect it had. And Vincent did run a, a very interesting uh, empirical research or study, whatever you want to call it, looking at the question: What if the committee had a rule in place allowing a company to be included? after it recorded an average market value greater than the S&P 500's minimum requirement for four quarters in a row. And if that rule had been in place, then Tesla would have been eligible for inclusion on June 29, 2011. Okay. And if Tesla had been included on June 29, 2011, this would have yielded S&P index fund investors 
an additional 24 basis points or 0.24% in return per year over that almost 10-year period now, while adding only about uh, a little bit in terms of volatility. And so that was pretty, that's quite an extraordinary, extraordinary reduction or extraordinary additional return if Tesla, if one company, Tesla, had actually been added to the S&P 500 10 years ago. In some, you know, it's just really hard for us to understand why the leading electric car maker in the world, not just in the U.S., as well as, I guess, the largest U.S. automaker by market value, was left out of the S&P 500 for so long. It was just quite quite amazing decision. And uh, it's just hard to believe, actually. So another issue that you've identified in terms of exclusion from the S&P 500 indices is dual-class share companies, except for those that are grandfathered. What are dual-class shares? And what are the legal and financial implications for their non-inclusion into the S&P 500 index? Well, I've written a lot about dual-class shares. I've I've been thinking about them for quite a while. And dual-class shares are basically a, a class of common stock but with special voting rights that has super voting rights, normally uh, a common stock, a share of uh, uh, General Motors will have one vote per share. But in a dual class share structure, there is a super voting class that has 10 votes per share. And those shares are usually owned by by founders of the company, like a Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, he'll own uh, the super voting shares that allows them to uh, maintain majority voting control without having to own the majority of common stock outstanding. And not just Facebook, but Alphabet and Zoom and Comcast and, and Snowflake and zillions of companies have these dual class share structures, basically trying, and trying to protect that what's called this idiosyncratic vision of the founders. So they retain control, even though they may not own the majority of shares. And from a financial perspective, it, it, it's pretty clear. It's this exclusion, uh, which the S&P 500, the index committee has implemented since uh, July 2017, at least to suboptimal returns for investors in S&P funds. Uh, in Vincent's empirical analysis, he estimated that their exclusion since 2017 has led to a 1.7% reduction in the value of funds that track the S&P 500. And that's just since 2017. You know, we come out 10 years from now, it's going to be a heck of a lot more. So we think this was another major mistake, another discretionary mistake made by the the index committee. you ask about the, the legal implications. Uh, well, if the index committee, again, wants to ex- do something, if they want to exclude dual class shares, that is its right. However, it really needs to be disclosed and legally disclosed to investors. And we'll talk about that in a little bit, I think. In S&P funds, uh, that suboptimal returns may result from their discretionary decision making, as it has. Yeah, the only thing I'd add to to uh, Bernard, and I agree with everything that he said so eloquently, uh, is I think there was some circumstantial rational for for that decision came right after the the IPO of Snap, uh, the parent company for you know the app Snapchat, uh, and um, it was just an overall horribly botched IPO. Um, I mean, pretty much everything that could go wrong went wrong. Um, the stock rapidly declined, lost close to 60% of its value in the first year. Now, of course, it's come back up a lot more, which I think uh, highlights that, you know, the, the committee should not act precipitously to, to respond to market development. It should focus just on, on, on you know, tracking a broad uh, set of stocks instead of trying to pick winners and losers. But at the time of the uh, Snap IPO, there was this revolt from institutional investors. You know, they saw this... Uh, he was probably a 25-year-old, uh, even Spiegel, the CEO. And, you know, he's this guy, you know, who's, you know, 
floating his company at a very high valuation, becoming a billionaire, keeping all the power himself, um, excluding, uh, breaking the rules of what they, they viewed as normal corporate governance. So um, it was a little bit of an institutional investor's revolt against uh, this kind of eccentric Silicon Valley founder, which may have merit in its own. I mean, I'm not, I'm not picking a, I don't have a dog in this fight, uh, but it is an active decision at the end of the day, if you want to make it, you know, if you want to make a point about corporate governance and, and, you know, this is orthogonal with the mission of the S&P 500 uh, index, which is to represent um, the U.S. economy. And whether we like it or not, um, you know, to allocate shares now, it's, I think it's close to more than 10% of market cap now. It is in dual class shares. And, um, you know, these companies, I mean, it's not just Snap. I mean, it's, you know, it was Facebook before that. It's Google, uh, Berkshire. Um, so you can't just pretend that it doesn't exist because you don't like it. So one of the solutions to the S&P Index Committee's discretionary nature has been suggested by Professor Adriana Robertson in the paper, The Misuses of the S&P 500, to register the S&P Dow Jones Indices and its index committee as an investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. Why should or should not this be viewed as a potential solution? Professor Robertson, she also notes that the S&P 500 is a general market index. Okay, and that that has a meaning under the Advisors Act. Uh, A general market index is an index that has the same list of securities, and weights for every user, regardless of that user's purpose or its relationship with the S&P. Okay. So she concludes in, in the same article that the S&P 500 index would probably be exempt under what's called the publication exclusion found in the Advisors Act. Basically, the S&P 500 is just presenting a list to everybody of 500 stocks. Okay. And that's that would come under the publication exclusion. Um, and a more and a recent article by Robertson, the same Professor Robertson and Professor Mahoney from the University of Virginia, also makes that argument that the S and P five hundred would uh, be uh, exempt under the publication exclusion. They also make that argument in more detail than Professor Robertson done in her initial article. But even if the publication exclusion does not apply. We really don't see how the S&P 500 funds and and their investors would actually benefit from the committee being designated as an investment advisor. Okay. A primary reason for that is because it's really unclear how the fiduciary duties of investment advisors that are, are extremely broad and undefined would actually impact the discretion of the committee in selecting the companies that make up the S&P 500. Our fear is that um, there's going to be a possible unintended consequence uh, of the S&P becoming a third party to how the S&P 500 is constituted. I don't think anyone wants that. Okay. So in sum, we, we really don't want to recommend anything that may cause more harm than good. Okay. So as we'll discuss shortly, I, th- I think, is that we, we are looking for more of a disclosure idea of, of uh, a legal disclosure requirement versus anything else. So continuing on, what should be done about all these problems that you've identified with S&P 500 index funds? Um, maybe I'll start briefly uh, just from the perspective of, of investors, uh, investors who really want to be you know, follow the framework of, of Bill Sharp and John Bogle and just say, okay, um, let me just put, you know, my 7% of my paycheck in my 401k every month and, and never look at it, never think about it and, and retire in 40 years. Uh, people who believe in, in passive investing, I think they should go with, with truly passive funds, um, not uh, active funds in passive disguise, which I would argue is what the S&P 500 index is. Uh, fortunately, there's a, quite an offering now. Um, uh, we see a lot of total market index funds, which truly try to minimize trading costs, 
truly try to use market cap as a sole criterion for index inclusion. And as a result, uh, will give investors a more diversified portfolio. And for example, they would have bought Tesla on IPO day. Um, and they would also have bought Zoom and all these other stocks with, with drought class share that had amazing performance. Uh, so giving um, investors, passive investors, a chance to participate uh, in, in the wealth creation uh, of these, these great companies that have been left out by the S&P 500. We also um, have a specific, our primary recommendation for the the index committee is that we, we have like this market value rule that we like them to include. And that's where we would, we, we recommend, we're not requiring anything of the index committee, that's up to them. We recommend that the committee include any firm that has been in the top 500 in market value for four consecutive quarters. Okay. So that will allow for the timely inclusion of the next Tesla and the quick inclusion of a dual class company like Zoom. Uh, incidentally, that company has had market value and also been very profitable, uh, has had a market value consistently been above the minimum requirement and is now approximately 10 times that requirement. And it has been up to 13 times recently. So this market value value rule is something that we think is probably be very helpful for investors. Um, in regard to our legal recommendation here, we, we now go to our disclosure uh, approach. Um, we have proposed language in the article, and it's kind of long, so I'm not going to read it here, but it's proposed language for a new risk factor disclosure, which we are calling selection risk, that should be included in every fund statutory and summary prospectuses. Okay. Risk factor disclosures are required by the, the SEC under the Securities Act of 1933. So we prefer to take what's called a full and fair disclosure approach instead of an investment advisor approach. Basically, you know, you got uh, investment funds, you got to tell what the S&P 500 index committee is doing here, that they're making selections that may not be optimal in terms of both representation of your portfolio at, in regard to the defined market of large cap stocks and all these industries, major industries, and also probably most importantly, that these, these discretionary decisions may not allow you to earn true market returns based on the defined market. So one of the solutions to the S&P Index Committee's discretionary nature has been suggested by Professor Adriana Robertson in the paper, The Misuses of the S&P 500, to register the S&P Dow Jones Indices and its index committee as an investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. Why should or should not this be viewed as a potential solution? Well, I'm going to answer that from an investor perspective. Obviously, I have some thoughts on, on what the committee should do. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, it's their rules, it's their index, so they do what, whatever they want. Um, from an investor perspective, I think um, people who are truly passive investors, like, you know, young millennial Gen Zers who just want to put, you know, max out their 401k contribution every month and just hold it forever, never look at it, and, and hopefully, you know, have a, a good nest egg by the time they retire – um, they should be looking at index funds that are truly passive, uh, not index funds that track the S&P 500 index. Uh, fortunately, there's a lot of offering lately uh, of what's called total market indices, which is a, a truly passive index, which owns every stock in the universe in proportion to its market cap. So such an index would have bought Tesla on the IPO day, and as a result, its shareholders would have uh, benefited in the fantastic price appreciation of the stock. Um, such an index would also buy dual class shares. And, and as a result, I would argue, be more diversified and be more efficient. And from the perspective of what we would recommend for, for the index committee, what they should do, uh, we recommend, and we don't require anything of them because they can do whatever they want, uh, again, uh, is what we refer to as a market value rule. This would... Uh, 
allow the committee to include any firm that has been in the top 500 in market value for four consecutive quarters. Okay. This would allow for the timely inclusion of the next Tesla and the quick inclusion of a dual-class company like Zoom, a company whose market value, uh, besides its profitability, has consistently been above the minimum requirement and is now approximately 10 times that requirement with a market value of around $100 billion. It's been up to $130 billion before the uh, uh, some, something of a pullback there. Uh, so that would, is what we would recommend for the index committee to consider is our market value rule. From a legal perspective, we do have a legal recommendation that we really think should be that the SEC should be encouraging um, uh, S&P funds to actually include in their prospectuses, uh, both statutory and summary, uh, is a, uh, a new risk factor. And we have a lengthy proposed uh, uh, section, or well, we proposed a lengthy amount of language uh, for this new risk factor disclosure, which we call selection risk. And uh, that selection risk uh, would be included again in every fund's uh, prospectuses. Uh, and these risk factor disclosures are required by the SEC under the Securities Act of 1933. So what we prefer is to take a full and fair disclosure approach instead of an investment advisor approach. So continuing on, what should be done about all these problems that you've identified with S&P 500 index funds? From our perspective, the, the index committee has been given so much discretion to determine which companies make up the S&P 500 including satisfying the wishes of its institutional investors, which it must do because the S&P 500 brings in a heck of a lot of money for, uh, for S&P Global, the parent company. We estimated that it brings in over a billion dollars a year in licensing fees. Um, and so because of this discretion, because of the pressures uh, from clients, uh, the S&P 500 has become a suboptimal representation of its defined market uh, and market returns. For example, by electing to give zero weighting to companies who have non-grandfathered dual-class shares. So from our perspective, that's the kind of decision made by an actively managed fund, not an index fund. Yeah, I, I think one benefit of being more uh, forthcoming about the uh discretionary nature of, of the S&P 500 committee is that it would force um, fund managers, investors to think more about indices. Um, uh, there is the, uh, now, now the focus is the tracking error versus the S&P 500. Like this, this is the metric for which many both passive and active fund managers are evaluated. So, but like, if the benchmark itself is skewed, you know, what's the point of, of trying to minimize the, the tracking error to something that's, that's biased? Uh, and I think it's a conversation that, that needs to be had as, as we see this rise of, of passive investing is like before, before the rise of passive investing, the, the big question about investing is like, okay, what's, what's a good stock? And I feel now the debate is like, what's a good index? And, and my impression, our impression after writing this paper is that the, the S&P 500 index is, is not a great index. Exactly. I totally agree. And I, I also, from a, an SEC required benchmarking disclosure perspective for, for S&P funds themselves, I mean, S&P 500 funds themselves, there are like, like over $4 trillion worth out there. And just because we don't like them <laughs> or we criticize them doesn't mean they're going to disappear. But as, as, as Vincent was saying, uh, you know, you need to show the fund's performance versus the S&P 500 index for tracking purposes, see if there's tracking error. But then again, because we think it's more of a, like an actively managed fund, then it needs to be compared also to another appropriate general market index, such as a total market index or an index that's trying to write something similar to the S&P 500. Again, this is something that I would think the SEC would encourage or should be starting to encourage uh, uh, S&P funds to do. 
So as a final question, do you have any last comments? And what should listeners, scholars, and policymakers take away from this paper? All right. Well, first off, again, and I, I want to keep repeating this because it's very important. We're not trying to force the index committee to change its behavior. Instead, we're very hopeful that our article is going to encourage them to make changes in its decision-making that will allow the S&P 500 to become more representative of its defined market and of the returns for that market. Okay, that would be great. And equally important objective, especially from the legal perspective, is to make investors aware of these deficiencies. Besides our article and whatever publicity it receives, okay, and wherever it's placed, hopefully it's placed in a very prestigious law review, the disclosure requirements of our federal securities laws should be sufficient to accomplish this objective of making investors aware of their deficiencies. And for that, for this is enough, that is enough for us. Okay. We're again, we're not requiring them to do anything. We're just hopeful that they will change their ways. If they don't, disclosures will cover them legally and that, and make investors aware of what they're actually getting into. I'll, I'll broaden this question a little bit to uh, a topic that we hint at uh, in the paper, which is the dilution of fiduciary responsibility that happens as we shift from actively managed vehicle and to towards index funds. You know, 30, 40 years ago, before we had uh, widely available index funds, things were fairly simple, like you hired someone, give him money, and then he, you know, he ran that money in an active way. Um, so the, the fiduciary duty was, was very simple. You had one person who really just answered to the investors and, you know, sometimes they maximized returns, sometimes they did not, but at least the, the chain was, was fairly simple. Um, the big innovation of the past 30, 40 years has been the rise of, of index funds. Um, and, and we've seen this, this dilution of fiduciary responsibility instead of now, you know, the, the phone is just, okay, my, my sole role is, is tracking that index and everything that goes with it, with, you know, whether it's, it's, it's proxy voting or it's, uh, you know, has been somewhat diluted. And I think it's, it's led to a weakening of, of shareholder democracy, uh, a weakening of, of corporate governance. Um, and I think one, one way to, I mean, we're not going to dial back the clock. And in some ways, I think it's, you know, the management fees are very low. The index fund has been a fantastic invention and it's appropriate for the vast majority of, of investors. And now we have, you know, if you look at any stock in the U.S., the top three largest shareholders are going to be uh, Vanguard, BlackRock and State Street. You know, collectively, they usually own between 25 to 30 percent of every U.S. company. And it seems to me that when you're that big, uh, you can't just hide behind the index and say, well, you know, I'm just doing what the index is telling me to do that. Or at least you need to bring uh, some focus on, on the on the index providers because they are uh, the, the steward of capital. They determine the allocation of capital. And I think it's something that's going to keep happening, partly because of the shift to passive, but also partly because of the shift to ESG, you know, they they get to say which company is virtuous, which one is sinful, which one should get money, which one should not. Uh, I'm going to end with a, uh, a Spider-Man quote, uh, you know, a Peter Parker quote, right? With great power comes great responsibility. Um, index funds have great power. Maybe it's time uh, index fund or index providers have great power. I think it should be time for them to have a bit more responsibility. Well, thank you very much for coming onto the podcast and talking about your interesting paper how discretionary decision-making has created performance and legal disclosure issues for the S&P 500 index. It's available on SSRN. A post in the Columbia Law Blue Sky blog should be forthcoming and hopefully coming to a prestigious law review near you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. A pleasure. Thank you. technology, it's a computing language, and I can build an app on it. There's 
Bitcoin the currency of the future. Crypto gang, crypto gang, big gang, all gang, light gang, cash game, blockchain. Whoa, I don't really ever buy stocks, man. No. Haters wanna say I'm in a bubble, man. No. Chip chew them up like bubble gum. No. Just made a meal with my pocket chain. No. Wreck about to go and join the huddle gang. Huddle gang, huddle gang, huddle gang. Crypto gang, crypto gang, big gang, all gang, light gang, cash game, blockchain. Whoa, I don't really ever buy stocks, man. No. Haters wanna say I'm in a bubble, man. No. Chip chew them up like bubble gum. No. Just made a meal with my pocket chain. No. Wreck about to go and join the huddle gang. Huddle gang, huddle gang, huddle gang. Ethereum pays for my rent. Bitcoin pays for the vent. Litecoin pays for the jet. Bitcoin cash for the rest. Spent 30 racks on an ICO. What coin did you buy? I forgot, yo. Just got started last night, bro. And I'm already hooked like a pipe, though. Flipping the coin, making it grow, taking it slow, letting it go. Cash flow's growing, it's incredible to watch it flow. Stacking the cash, taking it home, making it fast. I'm on a roll, little bit mo's all I ask for the bubble, though. Currently, learning about a new type of currency. Burning the dollar down like an emergency. Urgently, listen, my friends have been urging me. Coins have been surging, we're earning like surgency. We on a mission, man. Crypto maniac. Act like you don't really know about it. Stop that. Bitcoin blowing up like a bomb. Step back. Used to be a couple hundred dollars. Should've copped that. Blew up on a scene from the mind of a brainiac. Back in 2009, where the miners at? Silk Road, baby, it's gotta be anonymous. Satoshi blew up, now we on the map. Crypto gang, it's the game, big gang, all gang, light gang, cash game, blockchain. Whoa, I don't really ever buy stocks, man. Haters wanna say I'm in a bubble, man. Chip chew them up like bubble gum. Just made a meal with my pocket chain. Wreck about to go and join the huddle gang. Huddle gang, huddle gang, huddle gang. Everybody looking at me now and they're shocked now Cause the price going down Meanwhile, I'ma cop more at a discount with a smile Cause I'm making money on the altcoins right now I'ma double down like Animal Style Sup now People in the crowd, they watching me bubble up now Open up a brand new Coinbase account And I'm buying everything from Ripple to Litecoin now Pull out my principle, keep it real simple Then play with the house Investing in crypto, I'm chasing these coins Like they cheese to a mouse I'm on the verge of a digital currency, merging technologies. This is the future, so obviously I'm all in. There's no bottom. We hodling now. Hodo gang, hodo gang, hodo gang, hodo gang, hodo gang, hodo gang, hodo gang. Throw your hands in the air, man. If you down with the blockchain, I ain't got time for the haters, man. We about to grow to a million. Hodo gang, hodo gang, hodo gang. Tell me, are you down with the crypto? Hodo gang, hodo gang, hodo gang, hodo gang, hodo gang, hodo gang, hodo gang. Throw your hands in the air, man. If you dip it down with the blockchain, I ain't got time for the haters, man. We about to grow to a million. Hodo gang, hodo gang, hodo gang. Tell me, are you down with the crypto? It is the most powerful technology that the world has seen, I believe, since the invention of agriculture. Bitcoin is exciting because it shows how cheap it can be. Bitcoin is is better than currency. As with most major technology shifts, let's think about what young people are doing. 32% of young people say they prefer Bitcoin to stocks. 42% of millennial males say they plan to purchase Bitcoin in the next five years. We're barely in the first inning right now.